Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. All right, so we are going to jump into the sermon now. Uh, For those of you that are new here, my name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors. And today the sermon's coming to you from here in my study. Uh, My mom uh, always refers to all my books as uh, my friends. (laughs) Because <laughs> you're always talking about them, and you know these guys, and they they seem to figure you out too. So anyway, me and my friends have uh, been preparing this sermon for today here. I spent a lot of time in this place. It's a sacred place. I prepare to preach here, teach classes, or spend time uh, in pastoral care, oftentimes right here in this room. And so this is a sacred place to me. And before we jump into the sermon, I know, I know that we are all feeling a bit uncomfortable to say the least. In fact, many of us are very uncomfortable. Aside from the pandemic that has rocked our world, we've got so much injustice that we're looking at all around. And even the discussion surrounding injustice can make us all quite uncomfortable. And I just want to let you know, I'm in it with you. Like I, I'm. I can identify and go, gosh, this is such a challenge. In fact, I've been feeling pretty uncomfortable for quite some time (laughs) concerning racism and injustice. You know, and it really, it rung my bell, I don't know, back in 2007 when Jana and I moved to London. You see, I was born and raised in a small farm town called Woodstock, just outside of Atlanta. And we didn't have a lot of black people around. In fact, I had one black girl in my elementary school one black guy in my high school and a black man in, uh, in our church. And that's about it. And so I never really heard lots of discussion around racism and injustice and so on. I remember the LA riots being on TV and I was 12 years old. And I remember seeing all of that happen and go, it didn't register really with me. One, because of my age, I was 12. But then two, it just felt like I was just watching a movie of sorts. You know, it didn't feel real. You fast forward to nowadays and I turn on the news and go, oh, it feels real now. I get it. Part of it has to just do with age, you know. But anyway, I grew up in the church and got out of high school, went to college, went to, and got married, went to uh, seminary, did my first master's degree. And then Janet and I, we up and sold everything and moved to London, England. I was pursuing my postgraduate uh degree there at London School of Theology in the field of hermeneutics. And I can't tell you, just moving to that wildly multicultural city was so eye-opening on every level for me, just utterly mind-blowing. And in my school, it was no different. There's over 250 spoken languages in London, you know? And so in my school, all my classmates came from somewhere else around the world, Vietnam, the Congo, Ghana, Taiwan, Iceland, South Africa, Brazil, you know, and just literally from Saudi Arabia. I mean, everywhere. And so every day I was getting this like, wow, eye-opening experience. And it was not always comfortable for me. In fact, day one, you know, when you go around the room and you're introducing yourself to your classmates and they say, well, where are you from? Yeah, what's your name? Where are you from? 
field of interest or research or whatever. They get to me and they go, what's your name? Uh, my name's Alex and I'm from America. <laughs> that guy from Brazil goes, um, north or south? It's like, all oh, right, uh, north. He's like, yeah, there's a billion to the south. Don't forget. It's like, oh, man. And then the girl from Singapore, she goes, well, hold on. You need to be a little more clear. Are you, are you from, like, Canada or the United States? Still trying to. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, United States. <laughs> and it felt like that, like, almost every day. It was just like another spoonful of humility and opening my eyes up. And it was uncomfortable. Oh, my gosh. Blushing on the outside, squirming in my chair, like, oh, and yet, yet that is so, I look back with such fondness on those memories, not because I enjoy being uncomfortable any more than you do, but because in those moments I was being stretched, I was being challenged, I was being confronted and changed, and with, oh, I need to, I need to change some things about how I think, you know, it was so good for me. I just want to encourage you that as we're growing and studying the word of God and looking at the world around us that I know it's challenging, but I cannot tell you how much I love being a part of a church that is being challenged and going, hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, I don't know about what the thing I read over here, the thing over here, I'm challenged, I'm challenged, I'm challenged, I'm challenged, I'm challenged. I love getting to serve you as one of your pastors and walk alongside you because I'm in it too. I'm struggling too. I'm being challenged too. And if we're wrestling, if you're going, that's the word, wrestling, guess what? You have a whole lot in common with this book called the Holy Bible because you're wrestling with God. Israel, Jacob, the one who wrestles, you know? So be encouraged in this season. So as you know, we're going through our series entitled My Neighbor, Ethnicity, Justice, and the Image of God. And we're pulling on each of these threads, but we're doing so in each genre of scripture. You see, justice isn't something that just a prophet cares about, but God talks about justice again and again in each genre. So just like here in my study, you know, you got New Testament history over here, missiology over there, you know, uh, spiritual formation, apologetics. Old Testament, theology, whatever. All these things, it's all arranged according to genre. Your Bible's like that. Law, prophets, gospels, history, apocalyptic literature. And then we have this genre known as wisdom lit. And I love that because when you think about your Bible, you go, what an interesting author. Who would put wisdom literature in here if it has to do with salvation? What does wisdom literature have to do with how I live my life? And the answer is everything. You see, God could have just given us a genre like law and gospel, and that'd be pretty good. But God would go, no, Alex, you need more than law and gospel. You need my wisdom to know how to live skillfully, apply my wisdom in the world, in your workplace, in your relationships, and how you carry out your daily life. You need my wisdom. And so he gave us Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. That's our wisdom literature. They're not pithy sayings. They're not little fables. It's the wisdom of Almighty God breaking in 
and giving his people instructions. Here's how to live your life. They're not easy sayings. They're easy to understand, but my gosh, they are hard to apply. The Psalms and the Proverbs are probably the two most frequented books of the Bible, I think. You know, and I think that's because they're so jam-packed with story and pictures and images and emotions. Calvin said that the Psalms are the anatomy of the soul. Runs the whole gamut of our emotions, doesn't it? And so we gravitate toward these books because the poetry itself can sink its hooks into us in a way that other genres don't quite sink their hooks in in quite the same ways. It doesn't mean they're not inspired or insufficient. There's just a reason why we drift in this direction toward wisdom literature. And so, as you know, the theme of the book of Proverbs and throughout the wisdom lit is the fear of the Lord. It's a phrase that shows up again and again. And the fear of the Lord, though, is not something that shows up just there. It's first introduced in the law. Listen to this. Deuteronomy, the people of God have been delivered out of Egypt. They're receiving the law of God. They've received it. But then there's this curious passage in chapter six. It says this in verse 20. And he's instructing Moses, instructing the moms and dads. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before us, the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. So the fear of the Lord is, I love the scenario. When the son asked the dad or the mom, Hey, mom, why, is, why do we do the law every day? Why is it like that? Oh, tell them the story. Remind them. Well, we were slaves. God brought us out and he gave us a law and shows us how to live. And that's called the fear of the Lord. It's a way of saying, not just dread before a fiery Thor in the sky, but going, I'm going to give an account. I want to live wisely. I, I have a a limited amount of time on this earth. And then when it's closed, it's closed. I'm going to live my life in such a way that, that corresponds to the fact that I understand what it means to be redeemed. That I'm not merely redeemed and then set on a shelf, but I'm redeemed in order to be salt and light in this world. I'm going to walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, I used to teach uh, several classes in university back in Atlanta, and one of my favorite classes was Old Testament poetry. And listen, this is one of the textbooks we used by a guy named Hassel Bullock. I, I don't know if he's still teaching, but he was at Wheaton. And uh, here's what he says about the wisdom in the Proverbs. It says this, 
The basic nature of wisdom, as viewed by the author of Proverbs, is summed up in, this, in his statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That is, the fundamental nature of wisdom was theological. Thus, in Proverbs, the underlying basis of, life's, uh, of life is one's relationship to God. Out of that relationship grow moral understanding and the ability to judge what's right. A proper attitude toward material possessions, industrious labor, the necessary equilibrium, and sense of security for living in the world, and the right relationship toward one's neighbor, to mention only a few of the more practical benefits of that relationship. So you see, the fear of the Lord is a, it's, a, it's theological but it's not something that's just relegated to your mind, something that you think about. It's like, no, 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 this has something to do with your workplace. It has something to do with your relationships. It has something to do with how you live every single day. So listen to how the book of Proverbs opens. Proverbs 1 says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So catch that. Right out of the gate. Verse 3, the opening of the Proverbs, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Righteousness, justice, and equity. That's interesting. That at the very beginning of the Proverbs, he's saying, I want you to know that justice Righteousness, equity, has a, has a place in wise living before God. And that, that struck me. I was sitting on the couch talking to Jana Sunday night going, why does justice show up so often? It's even at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs. Why does it show up in wisdom literature? It's one thing for it to show up, you know, in, say, the law, of course. I can see it there. A prophet, for sure. Jesus, that makes sense. Paul, sure. Like all those places you see justice, the people of God being instructed, practice a just life. You go, yeah. But wisdom, why does it find itself, find a home, find footing in this unique genre of scripture? And I think it's because wisdom is given for the sake of human flourishing. You see, the way I've traditionally thought about wisdom most of my life, I think I've confused wisdom with pragmatism. Maybe you're like me in that way. Like it, it, wisdom, Biblical wisdom is not just being smart, pragmatic, or an intellectual. Biblical wisdom is concerned around, about the world and the community around them around the individual. It's very interesting. Like in pragmatism, it's about the individual. It's about what do I want? How can I get there? 
How can I get there fastest? How can I get there cheapest? How can I, how can I maximize and get the most bang for my buck out of this thing called life? That's pragmatism. Pragmatism is about getting to the top of Mount Rainier. And if anybody joins you at the top, cool. But if, if not, all right, that's fine too. But in biblical wisdom, it's not just try to get to the top of the mountain on your own. Be pragmatic. Cutthroat if you have to. Biblical wisdom goes, no, no, no. It's kind of like when you fly over the top of Rainier, whenever we get to get on airplanes again, you, know, you fly over the top of Rainier. That's biblical wisdom. It's looking down on people trying to climb to the top. And biblical wisdom goes, I'm not interested in the rat race of just getting to the top for, for the sake of getting to the top or getting ahead. I don't view other people as my competition. Uh, biblical wisdom is horizontal in scope as well. That the wisdom of God, if it comes into the person, then it's naturally, the natural implication of biblical wisdom is to then practice justice and seek the well-being of our neighbors, not merely competing. I was recently uh, reading uh, Dr. King's Christmas sermon <laughs> in, a, in a book called uh, A Testament of, of Hope. And in, the, in his Christmas sermon, I think it was 63, no, 1967, here's what he says. Listen to this, because this has so much to say about how are we going to achieve a peaceful world, a just world. It's not going to be through competing with our neighbor. It's going to be seen in how much we depend on our neighbor. Listen to this. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave your leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and you go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And you go into the kitchen and drink your coffee for the morning and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea. That's poured into your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast. And that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. <laughs> so, like Dr. King was calling for it. Going, hey, until you see your neighbor is actually necessary to all of your life, we're not really going to have this thing called peace and justice and so on on the earth. Another thing that stood out to me in study this week was uh, another famous part of the, of the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs six will save your life if you listen to it uh, in a number of ways. 
But there's this one part that stands out. And we looked at it last July in the book of James. And it's worth repeating again here. Listen to this. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. When you hear that and you're thinking justice, wow, wow. In chapter one, he's telling us, I want you to live a just life. He says, here's six things the Lord hates. No, seven. Why do they write it that way? This is pretty fascinating. Um, I remember learning about this 20 years ago. This is what's known as a chiasm in Hebrew literature. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of writing so as to offset the main point. So they'll say six, no, seven. And then you're supposed to go look for the middle. It looks like this. I'll pull it up to you. Arrogant eyes, lying tongue, hands that kill, evil planning heart, feet that run to evil, lying witness, stirs up trouble. You see that? And then right here in the very center, you've got this evil, this evil planning heart. Solomon's going, where does arrogance, lying, murder, people running off to do evil, stirring up gossip and trouble? Where's all that come from? Oh, it comes from right here with the with the with an evil planning heart. <laughs> so when we think about justice, we're going, well, where does it all come from? Where do we end up with so much evil in the world? It comes from within. It comes from within an evil planning heart. It's the thing Jesus talks about in, in, in Mark chapter 7. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's not what you eat or drink that's going to make you venomous and poisonous. No, it's what's already coming out of your heart. That's the stuff. That's the stuff. An evil planning heart. What would our society, heck, let's just boil it down right to our church. Let's just talk to us. Um, what would our church look like if we had the opposite of these things going on in our daily lives and in our community? What if instead of arrogant eyes, what if we had a humble outlook? What if we had instead of lying tongues, we were committed to fiercely telling the truth? What if our hands weren't planning to harm, but looking for every opportunity to heal and help? What if our feet weren't quick to run away from problems or even run away from evil, but our feet were covered with the gospel of peace and we were the people that Isaiah talks about, Paul talks about, blessed are the feet that bring the good news. What if that's what our feet were for? What if instead of, gossiping and stirring up trouble and bad-mouthing and bickering and, well, did you hear about or did you know that? What if we weren't the stir-up trouble people? What if we were known for gossiping good news? Did you hear? So-and-so's walking with Jesus. Did you hear the good news? So-and-so's experience. Right? Oh, that's beautiful. So, where do I get the strength? <laughs> to do to do this, to have the kind of heart that God and life that God doesn't despise, but rather the, the life that God takes deep pleasure in. Well, like always, 
It is not in white knuckled obedience. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Try really hard. Guilt yourself into, you know, a day or two of obedience. We get it in the gospel itself. Where do we see the wisdom of God displayed best? We see it in the, in the cross of Jesus. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I'll thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made the, the has God not has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Wow. Wisdom. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where do you get the wisdom of God? Is the wisdom of God something I reach for? Not exactly. The wisdom of God is a person you bow before. Did you hear what he said? Christ himself is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world can't find God. The wisdom of the world can't solve every problem we're facing day in and day out. We can try with some things, but at the end of the day, if we want real hope, real answers, real security, real peace, it will come from the God himself, the God of justice, the God who is wisdom. We get it at the feet of Jesus. And in the wisdom of God, it is foolishness to the world. What kind of savior saves through a cross? That's what Paul's saying. And yet that is the very wisdom of God. As the scoffers laughed at Jesus dying, that was the very wisdom of God that was bringing about salvation for the whole world. So again, this is what we offer the world day in and day out. That's Screaming and striving and foaming, asking for justice, 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 justice. Is there anywhere in the world where justice was or will be served? And ultimately, the ultimate justice came down on the cross of Jesus. And we did not pay that penalty, but Jesus paid. Jesus died and Jesus rose. That's where our righteousness, wisdom and sanctification comes from. And I know as we struggle with all of this stuff and work through it, I know many of us are wondering even, well, what's this gonna, what's it gonna cost me? 
all right, I'm in. I'm trusting Jesus for my salvation. I'm going to follow him. What's it going to cost? Because I feel like there's just not enough to go around, you know? I was reading one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann. He wrote a poem on generosity. I want to read it to you. It says this. On our own, we conclude there's not enough to go around. We're going to run short of money, of love, of grades, of publications, of sex, of beer, of members, of years, of life. We should seize the day, seize our goods, seize our neighbor's goods, because there's not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving children at the 11th hour. You come giving homes to exiles. You come giving futures to the shut down. You come giving Easter joy to the dead. You come fleshed in Jesus. And we watch while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow and life we did not invent and future that is gift and gift and gift and gift and families and neighbors who sustain us when we did not deserve it. It dawns on us late rather than soon that you give food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, break our cycles of imagined scarcity. Override our presumed deficit. Quiet our anxieties of lack. Transform our perceptual field to see. The abundance, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing. Sink your generosity deep into our lives that your muchness may expose our false lack. That endlessly receiving, we may endlessly give so that the world may be made Easter new. Without greedy lack, but only wonder. Without coercive need, but only love. Without destructive greed, but only praise. Without aggression and invasiveness, all things Easter new. All around us, toward us, and by us, all things Easter new. Finish your creation in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.